Well, good morning. morning. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. It's good to see so many familiar faces, and I mean, you folks I've not been able to meet yet, so I look forward to hopefully getting to meet some of you today, but it's an honor to be back uh, this morning at Hainstown from all the way down at Salem Park. Uh, They send their greetings, and they love you, and it's a a joy and a a pleasure to see over the last year what it looks like when God does a significant work, and you become one church of two locations, and God continues to pour His blessing out, and as we've experienced at Salem Park and, and as you guys have experienced uh, week in and week out here at Hainstown, uh, it never gets old seeing people give their lives to Jesus and seeing people baptized and seeing people get plugged into church and understand what it means to live in community. And I really hope that as a church, we never get over that. Um, I hope we never get over seeing people find healing and wholeness in Jesus. I really hope that we never get unaffected by seeing people take steps of faith. I really pray and hope that we are always excited and expected that God wants to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine because we want to lean in, as we say all the time, we want to lean in to see gospel saturation in our city so that what? Every man, if you can't say this by now, it'll be on a tattoo in your arm at some point, so that every man, woman, and child can have repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. And some of you are those people that because God has blessed and allowed us to go to one church, two locations that God has brought to himself through his grace, and we're grateful for that. But I hope that we always remain focused on what God has called us to, to live on mission individually, to live on mission collectively, where we live, work, and play, so that what? Those that are close to us but far from God can meet Jesus. Because that's our goal and that's our heart. Um, as we remain committed and steadfast to gospel collaboration across our city, it was cool this past week. The elders got to go to Atlanta and join in with uh, with leaders and pastors from 20 different cities around the United States, really just to talk about gospel collaboration and gospel saturation in our cities. How God's at work. How can we be more effective um, and more um, intentional? In what God has called us to. Because here's the deal: uh, there is one church. Jesus has one bride. And she meets in a lot of places, in a lot of different spaces, but it's an honor to be a part of what God is doing, not just in our city. So I want to encourage, that, encourage you with this. God is not just working in our city. He's working across the United States and across the globe. And as long as we can remain committed uh, and unified and generous with what God gives us, we'll continue to see churches planted, disciples made, and the kingdom advanced and losses decreased. And that's our desire. So I just want to acknowledge this morning that God is good. He's doing a great work. Um, May we remain humbled by the fact that he allows us to be part of it. He doesn't owe it to us, team. He doesn't have to use us. He doesn't have to allow us to be a part of it to accomplish his purpose. But out of kindness, God chooses to use us and to bless us as a distinct privilege of being a part of his redemptive plans. See, at some point, if you know Jesus, at some point, God graciously intersected your story with his glory. And when that happened, you've never been the same. And there's still a lot of folks outside of these walls every single day whose story is yet to interact with God's glory, and God may use your story to make that invitation happen. And so we're going to continue to live on mission and trust that God is going to allow His goodness to flow through us and His kindness to be put on display through what He's doing in our midst. And the reason I'm talking about kindness and mercy and goodness specifically this morning is that in our text today in the life of David, we're going to drop in on one of perhaps my favorite stories, really in all the Bible, uh, definitely the Old Testament. It's a story that we're going to drop in on this morning in David's life. And as we look at this story, we're going to see God bring to the surface what a picture of unmerited mercy and undeserving kindness look like. We're going to look at 
this story, we're going to see as we talk about it in the series along the way, how this story, perhaps more than any story in David's life, points us to Jesus in a very profound, significant way as we watch David the king demonstrate grace and mercy and kindness to someone we're going to see was very undeserving. The gospel is all over our text today, and I love this story uh, because I get to introduce you to a character that most of you have never heard of. Um, If you're expecting a new boy, then this name of this guy is great. His name is Mephibosheth. So maybe that needs to be put into your family stream as a new uh, awesome name. Most folks have never heard of Mephibosheth. He's a very obscure, overlooked uh, dude with a really strange name. And we're going to find him this morning in a very difficult situation, almost impossible. We're going to find him really in the pit of helplessness and hopelessness and brokenness. And we're going to drop in on his life in a place where he is desperate undeserving, really from all intents and purposes doomed in a life that he is stuck in. We're going to learn about this guy that he is crippled, not just spiritually, but physically. And he's in tragic need of mercy and kindness. So go ahead and start making your way to 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's where we're going to pick up. That's where we're going to meet Mephibosheth in just a few minutes. And as you're making your way there, I want to give a quick recap because context matters and where we've been matters and where this story fits into the bigger story matters. And I know some of you have been here every week. Some of you, this is your first Sunday. Some of you have been able to drop in, in and out as we walk through the life of David. But I want us all to be on the same page to see what is happening because it really all fits together in a beautiful way. So even if you've not ever been in church or you've not grown up in church, most of us have heard of King David and we at least have a rudimentary understanding of who he is, but I'm going to give you a a quick uh, recap so that you have the pace for where we're going to be in just a moment. So here's what we learned about David through this study that we were working through. He is uh, the anointed king of Israel. And when we first met David, he was a lonely little lad in Bethlehem, and he was a shepherd in his family's uh, business there, and he was the youngest of all the brothers and overlooked and, and underestimated. And Samuel sent to him because God says, I've appointed a new king over Israel to replace Saul. And he goes, and unexpectedly, he finds David and anoints him to be the next king, but his time and night yet comes. So David hangs out in the pasture for a good long while, and once he makes his way to the palace, he doesn't go there to rule and reign. He goes there because he's got mad harp skills and King Saul is kind of emotionally disturbed and distraught. And so David comes in to play the harp, to soothe the king. And that lasts for a while until something epic happens. A dude comes and from the army of the Philistines and throws down the gauntlet against the people of Israel. He's a huge guy named what? Goliath, awesome. David steps up. I'm not just a heart player. I've got some skills in war as well. And David steps up to the plate when nobody else will step up, even King Saul. If you know the story, David goes to battle, lays a smackdown on Goliath, and uh, really just makes the fool look stupid because he takes his own sword and he cuts his own head off with it. Takes his head home as a trophy because David was a bad man. And in all this, we see David's bravery and courage. It wins him the affection of King Saul. Wins him the adoration of the people of Israel. He becomes a commander in the army. And along the way, he also becomes BFFs with Saul's son, Jonathan. Our souls are knit together, and they become really good friends. And as we've learned, really it's a lot of a mentor relationship because Jonathan was probably somewhere between 20 and 30 years older than David when they met. But they become close friends, and David continues to be successful. And his success in battle is a double-edged sword because the more successful David is, the more the people love him, and the more the people, the more Saul hates him. Saul grows more and more jealous of David every time he gets a victory, and they sing David's praises. And quickly, David becomes Saul's enemy. But what's interesting is Saul never becomes David's enemy. 
Saul is very insecure, he's insane, and he's incensed by David's popularity, and on three occasions he tries to kill David by throwing a spear at him, and his aim is terrible, so David escapes, and we learn that his ire against David actually pours over to Jonathan because Jonathan loves David, tries to, defend, tries to defend David against his father, and he gets enraged at Jonathan, tries to kill him as well. And all through this chaotic nonsense, the story continues forward, and David is trying to run from Saul, and Saul is nefarious and murderous, and he's trying to get after David at every turn. And, and so as David gets ready to leave and to flee officially, he and Jonathan make a covenant together. And Jonathan, this matters for our text today, Jonathan asks David to make a covenant with him because Jonathan knows David is the next king of Israel. Even though Jonathan is the heir apparent, he knows he's not gonna take the throne. He knows his dad is gonna be replaced. He knows David is God's anointed. So Jonathan looks at David and says, make a promise to me, make a covenant that when you come to the throne, you will not dispatch of my offspring and you will do good to my house. And that matters for our text today. So David and Jonathan make this covenant promise. David flees and is gone. And their friendship ends up being relegated to great distance for the rest of their life. Saul hunts David time and time again relentlessly, and God protects David. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, Saul has to do number two. So he goes into a cave. Yeah, I said number two from the stage. Here you go. Let me make sure you're with me. Had to do number two. He goes into a cave. It just so happens to be the cave David and his men are in. David could have killed him. David shows honor to him and doesn't kill him, but shows honor to him as the king despite the fact that Saul wanted him dead and even uh, tells Saul and confronts Saul and says, hey, I could have killed you, but I cut off the corner of your robe, so I spared your life. But even because all that happened, Saul did not stop gunning for David and wishing to kill him. But time and time again, God preserved him. And that when we get to the end of 1 Samuel, what happens is Saul and Jonathan die in battle alongside one another, and David finds out in the first part of 2 Samuel and weeps over their death. Not just Jonathan's death, but Saul's death. He weeps over their death. He laments over their death. But David didn't immediately ascend to the throne because one of Saul's sons tries to clamor for his daddy's throne, and a war rages between the house of David and the house of Saul. And over time, people get assassinated, and people get murdered, and all kinds of crazy things happen. And finally, David gets to the throne, and the Bible says there is peace all around. And we know, as we looked at of the last week, the ark is brought to Jerusalem, and there's great worship and adoration until that one dude who did not listen to MC Hammer. You with me? Because you can't touch this. And he didn't listen, and he touched the ark, and God killed that dude right there, okay? Then after that, the ark is in Jerusalem. David settled in as a king. Israel settled in at peace with their enemies. And God makes a covenant promise with David that he would bless his household, bless and bring from his offspring an eternal kingdom and an eternal king whose throne would be everlasting, steady, and sure. And that's where we ended last week, seeing David receive overwhelming kindness and grace from God, and that sets the stage for where we're going to be today. 2 Samuel 8, 15 says, David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And that parlays in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you will stand with me as we honor the reading and hearing of God's word, 2 Samuel chapter 9, it'll be on the screen as well. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. 
that King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage, and he said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all to his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, and that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray. God of all glory and all grace, we humbly come before this morning, and we ask that while we know not, you would teach us, that while we are not, you would make us, and that while we have not, you would give us in your son, Christ. And we ask, Spirit of God, who lives in us and is at work in these moments around us and in this place, that you would, through the word of God that we have read, and we're going to spend these next few minutes studying, reveal to us in a very clear, transforming way the Son of God, whose name is Jesus, in whose name that we pray, amen. I love this story, okay? I didn't test you earlier. Say it one more time. What's the guy's name? Mephibosheth. All right. Who's going to name their kid that? Somebody's got to step up to the plate. It's a biblical name. Some of you, it checks the box that way. Okay? At least one of my favorite three stories in all the Bible. I'll come back to it time and time again. When I've been able to preach on this topic, on this character, I get really stoked because I love this story. And, my, and here's why I love this story. Every time I read 2 Samuel chapter 9, I see myself clearly not in David, but in Mephibosheth. And my prayer this morning, my prayer has been all week, that as we walk through this text, that God would open our hearts and our minds, whether you are currently a follower of Jesus, whether you're seeking after truth, or whether you showed up this morning and you've not been in church in a long time, my prayer is that this morning, that God in His grace would put a mirror in front of you and you would see yourself as Mephibosheth as well. That you would see yourself as one in desperate need of God's kindness. So this may be an obscure passage in an obscure place of an obscure person in the Old Testament. It may to some be like, well, that's outdated, irrelevant, it's unimportant. But I'm telling you, there may not be a more clear picture in all the Bible of the desperate need that we have for God's kindness and hopelessness and helplessness that is true of us apart from Christ than this story in the Old Testament. So I don't always have points, and I don't always make my points with P's, but I did today. You're welcome. So if you take notes, three P's, King's pick, King's promise, King's provision. Look at those first three verses again. David asked if there anyone left in the house of Saul that he could show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. There was a servant of Saul named Ziba, and he came to David. They asked him who he was. He said, I am Ziba. I'm your servant. And he asked, is there still not someone of the house of David, of his house of Saul, that I may show, show the kindness of God to him? So what David desires to do, because I want to show mercy and kindness to the house of my enemy, Saul. To the man who tried to relentlessly murder me and hunt me down. To the man who hunted me like an absolute dog and tried to kill me at every turn. See, what David is desiring to do here is really unusual, and it's not normal operating procedure for the new king. Why? Because if you're the new king in that context, the first thing you would normally do once you got to the throne is you would exterminate every offspring of the previous king. 
You would hunt them down, you would kill them, and you would get rid of them, particularly sons and grandsons, because they would be a potential threat to your throne and you would do away with them. So that would be normal operating procedure. In this moment, that's not what David does. He says, is there anybody left in the house of Saul that needs uh, kindness shown to them? That's what David's desiring to do. I want to extend kindness and grace to someone who does not deserve it, nor would they ever expect to receive it. See, David is not just being a nice person. He is being overwhelmingly kind, seeking the welfare of someone else, and trying to be generous and compassionate because he can. And the reason David is so motivated is because in the previous chapters we see God has been so gracious and kind to David. He knows it, he's experienced it, he's a man who loves God and wants to honor God, and that's where our boy Mephibosheth comes on the scene. So you're going to hear me drop back to what his homies called him, which is fibs, every once in a while, because it's much shorter and it's easier to say. So fibs will come on the scene in just a minute, but we meet Zeba first, and who is Zeba? He's also kind of a random character. We find that he was a former senior servant in the house of Saul, and now he's in the house of David. He's an OG in the kingdom. So David calls him in, he says, I want to know who I can show kindness to in the house of Saul. And what is Zeba's response? Listen, there's still a son of Jonathan, and notice his, his explanation, he is crippled in his feet. He said, where is he? He's in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. See, Mephibosheth was the son of David's best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of Saul, and David loved Jonathan. And for uh, Jonathan's sake, he wants to extend kindness. Jonathan had protected David from his deranged father, and David learns Jonathan had a son who was crippled, and he wants to bring him to his presence. So we find out he's crippled and he's living in a town called Lodabar. So why does that matter? When you read the Bible, details do matter. And all the details in the story do matter. So here's first off. Mephibosheth's name literally means a shameful one. I don't know what your mama named you. But I'm sure she'll say, let me see what a shameful one means or ugly kid and name my kid that. Like that's not normally what parents do. But his name means a shameful one, which is pretty heartbreaking. So right off the bat, we understand that his name is really unfortunate. He's from a family that has an outcast, rejected family because it's from Saul. See, Mephibosheth was once the son of the prince, heir to the throne, living in the palace, enjoying the prestige and the comfort and the perks of being the grandson of the king. But the days are long gone, and now he's living far away from Jerusalem in a place called Lodabar, and Lodabar literally means no pasture. So what do we learn about Phib so far? He's a nobody living in the middle of nowhere. Bleak situation. Life has dramatically changed from Mephibosheth. He's been removed from the palace, removed from wealth, prosperity. Now he's in a place of destitution and difficulty. And if that is not hard enough, it says he has a significant physical disability. He's crippled in both his feet. How did that happen? Look at, if you, if you want to, flip back 2 Samuel 4, 4 to be on the screen as well. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan's death came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name is Mephibosheth. So he's five years old when his dad and granddad get killed in battle. She flees, and he's crippled by a great fall. And that great fall left him lame. And here's the reality in that context, in that culture specifically, that disability would have made him incredibly ridiculed and mocked and scorned and teased. And he'd been looked down upon and he'd been treated like an outcast. And he would have been, hear me, he would have been desperate every day of his life after that for someone to be kind, merciful and gracious to him. So right off the bat, team, we're just like this dude. We are all born into a rejected 
broken family. Be like, hold up, Jason. My family played shoots and ladders every weekend. We loved each other. We like made s'mores on the weekends. We hung out. We had a family handshake. We had nicknames. My family was legit. I'm not talking about that family. We're all born into a spiritual family that is broken. We're all born as sinners by birth and by nature. We're born with a nature that makes us enemies with God and rebels against his kingdom. Ephesians 2 makes it as clear as anywhere else in all of scripture where Paul says, we were dead in our sins, hostile and alienated from God and separated from God. Hear me, we are enemies of God because of our own great fall. A a great and tragic fall that happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, a a fall that occurred when Adam and Eve chose what they wanted over what God wanted and they disobeyed. And when they sinned, all of creation fractured. All of creation got thrown into chaos. And there was contention and strife and hardship. And their choices to disobey God that brought sin into the world made them have to be excommunicated from God's presence and kicked out of the garden into a very broken world. So it's because of a great fall and that expulsion from the presence of God that we as humans, and there's never been a human that's existed this is not true for, every human being is desperately searching for wholeness and meaning and identity in everything the world says can satisfy them. Everybody, relationships, money, fame, companionship, family, we're trying to find wholeness and identity in things that may be good but can never satisfy us. And we end up wandering around like wanderers around the earth trying to find a true home and true rest. We're perpetually in a place of no pasture. Feeling like we're alienated and estranged and devoid of peace. See, the Bible says our souls are crippled. We have sin-sick hearts that are aimless and restless apart from God and we're utterly hopeless and helpless on our own. We can't please God with our efforts. We can't make ourselves right before God by our good deeds. We're unworthy of being in his presence because of our depravity. We, just like Mephibosheth, are in desperate, desperate need of amazing, overwhelming kindness. Look at verses 5 and 6. The King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, to Elodabar, and he came, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered and said, behold, I am your servant. So King David asked, and Mephibosheth was brought to the palace. So what does that teach us? The king always initiates. He always initiates. The king makes the first move towards this rejected, crippled grandson of his former enemy. And how does he respond when he gets there? Mephibosheth is overwhelmed with humility and gratitude. He falls on his face and tells David, I am your servant. See, here is the gospel in 2 Samuel chapter 9. God is the one who always initiates with us. He's the one who draws us to himself. He is the one who always makes the first move. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we see the king's pick and now we see the king's promise. So why did David extend this invitation to Mephibosheth? He certainly didn't have to, not obligated to. Mephibosheth had literally zero to offer the king. Hear me, nothing to offer the king. But David, out of kindness, says, I want to demonstrate kindness and mercy to someone. Why? David is honoring his covenant promise that he made to his friend Jonathan 20 years earlier. 
He had not forgot about it. He made it to the throne, and he remembered the promise that he'd made. And now Mephibosheth is a beneficiary of the marriage of his father. It was for Jonathan's sake that David extends kindness to honor his friend Jonathan by blessing his son. So here's the question. Why does God extend kindness and save us? Not because we deserve it. Not because we earn it. Not because God needs us on his team. Not because we're number one draft picked in the fantasy draft this year. God does not need us. We have nothing good to offer him. We have no merits before him. We are saved by God's grace on the perfect work and perfect worth of Jesus, period. We're saved because a great exchange happened on the cross. On the cross, what did Jesus get? He got my sin and my shame and my deformity, and he gives me his righteousness. He took all the ugliest parts of me and gave me the beautiful parts of him. That is the picture of the gospel. He got our junk and our brokenness so that we get his perfection and holiness. So we're saved and forgiven and made acceptable before God for Christ's sake, for the Son's sake. I want you to notice up to this point, it keeps saying the king said this, the king did that, King David went there, King David said this, but when you get to David's encounter with Mephibosheth, it changes and it just says David. David calls him by name. Not King David, not the king. David called him by name, personally, intimately. He extends the invitation to him and calls him by name. And the text says, there's an exclamation point there, he emphatically said, Mephibosheth. Can you imagine how long it's been since someone even probably spoke his name? How long has anybody even saw him, acknowledged him, and recognized him? And David calls him and calls him by name. And hear me this morning. The king of heaven calls every person by name. He says, come to me, come to me through my son and by the spirit and embrace forgiveness and redemption. And despite, listen, cultural Christianity has lost its mind. And here's the deal. God does not call us to himself as a part of a group project. You are not a Christian because your daddy was a Christian. You're not a Christian because your granddaddy was a deacon. You're not a Christian because your mama taught Sunday school. Those are great things and hopefully made an impact. The only way you come to God is by yourself. By God in his grace calling you by name and saying, come to me. This is not middle school or high school when you had a group project and you hated everybody in your project for not doing their own work. You're like, I got to do all the work for all these losers. This is not how salvation works. God calls you to himself by name based on what Jesus has done. And there's no other way to heaven except through Christ. You can't earn it. Every other religion says, do this. Christianity says, it has been done for you. He calls you by name. He knocks on the door of your heart and says, come to me. And we respond. See, there was no other way for Mephibosheth ever to come before King David unless he had beckoned him. He would have never approached the throne of the king on his own. So what would have happened to old Phibs had David not called him? He would have languished, destitute, and broken, and he would have perished apart from anybody, apart from any hope, by himself, and no one would have ever heard of him had David not sought him out. His name would not be included. I hope that we are seeing ourselves in the passage and understanding the gravity of the gospel in this story. So what did King David offer and how did Mephibosheth respond, seven and eight? So do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? David says, don't fear. 
because he must have been terrified before the king. When they came and got him at Lodabar, he had to be assuming, I'm about to die. They're going to drag me to the palace. They're going to dispatch of me. There's a new sheriff in town. I'm the grandson of Saul. He's going to kill me. He's going to take me out. My life is over. My family is doomed because I know what happens to the former relatives of the kings. But he shows up and he doesn't get condemnation. He doesn't get judgment. He doesn't get anger. He doesn't get anything except grace. David speaks peace over Mephibosheth, who referred to himself as a dead dog. And he says, you're not here for punishment, you're here for kindness. And the word, the text there literally means David said, I will surely show you kindness. See, Mephibosheth is not given what he deserved for belonging to the wrong kingdom. He was instead given a merited grace based on the promise his father had, been, had made with David before Mephibosheth was ever even born. And he knew nothing about so it's not contingent on Mephibosheth at all. See, the Bible says, how much greater is the grace given to us through Jesus? The Bible says, we're doomed residents of a kingdom of darkness until God intervenes and initiates. Colossians 1 says, he delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Bible says, whether we like it or not, we're dead dogs apart from God. How many of you passed a dead animal this morning? Did anybody expect it to get up and run away? It's dead. You know what dead things do? They stay dead. And the Bible says we're dead until God, His kindness, initiated with us and poured His grace out on us through Jesus. And the Romans 8 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God calls us out of guilt and shame and condemnation into the marvelous light of His kingdom. I love the next part. David not only did not punish or condemn Mephibosheth, he seeks to envelop him in kindness. He goes, I'm going to restore all that belongs to your grandfather Saul back to you. It's, it's astounding mercy and grace. He said, I'm, I, your father, your grandfather may have been someone seeking to kill me. He may consider me his enemy, but I'm going to pour out grace on you. And I'm not just giving you back land that you would have had. I'm letting you eat at my table always. You see, Mephibosheth hits his face and tries to take the posture of a servant before the king, but the king brings him to the table as a son. See, that is a gigantic gospel bomb. Because in this moment, his status as an enemy gets changed to that as a friend. The foe becomes family. The rejected is welcome to the table. We saw the king's pick and the king's promise. Look at verses nine and following through the king's provision. King called Ziba, all that belonged to Saul in his house, I give to your master's grandson, and you shall take care of him until the land so he has bread to eat, and you shall always eat at my table. He had 15 sons and 20 servants, and he said, according to all that is done, you've said, my, my king, I will do. And he ate at David's table like one of the king's sons, and he had a young son named Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table, and now he was lame in both his feet. See, David says, I'm going to choose this crippled grandson of my greatest adversary, and I'm going to bring him to my presence. And that is a beautiful picture of amazing grace. Next, King David says, I'm going to make a promise to always take care and provide for you, Mephibosheth. See, this is a beautiful picture of God's kingdom advancing the hearts and the minds of people. When you've been a recipient of kindness, you extend kindness. When you've been the beneficiary of grace and mercy, you show it grace and mercy to other people. When you've tasted of undeserved forgiveness, you're a forgiving person. 
When you truly have felt and experienced the love of God, you're not content being a hearer. You want to do a doer of the word and put it into action. And that's what King David does. See, those last few verses demonstrate to us and declare that David's promises were not simply limp service or quaint niceties or good intentions. He does everything he promises. He gives action to his word. I'm going to defend you and protect you and provide for you, Mephibosheth. And that's a beautiful picture of foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. King David calls Ziba the servant and gives him the royal decree. Everything that belonged to Saul, give back to Mephibosheth. So anything that he would have had, had Saul been on the throne or Jonathan taken the throne, he now is given back. But he goes beyond that. You're all going to take care of him. You and your family, your servants, you're going to take care of Mephibosheth and his family because I'm providing for all that they need. David had, didn't have to do any of it. It's counterintuitive. Let me bring the grandson of the man who maliciously hunted me down into my home and give him back everything that he would have had. And I'm going to preserve him. And by preserving Mephibosheth, what's crazy is David is purposefully preserving Saul's line. Not just for Mephibosheth, because the text says that he also has a son named Micah. So his kindness goes far beyond just Mephibosheth. David is seeking to change a generation. One act of kindness, one act of extreme grace and generosity can literally affect a generation behind you. One act of kindness can literally change the trajectory of the entire family tree. David didn't have to, David could have stopped, he didn't stop. He said, listen, Mephibosheth, all the land is given back, and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring you to my table to eat always. So King David says, you think you're a dead dog, I'm going to bring you to the table in a seat of prominence, not as a servant, but as a privileged status as a son. And he didn't say, listen, here, here's the deal, Fibs. I'm not going to kill you. Here's some land. Every once in a while, you can come to the palace. You can go to the man cave, get some Cheetos and some Coke, hit up the PS5. It'll be great. Come hang out. It'll be great. I'll send you back home later. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say that. He said, you're going to come, and you're always going to eat at my table, Mephibosheth. You're going to always partake in the rich, wonderful, special food and drink that my family gets to enjoy. You see, this is a humbling picture of the promises of the gospel, that if you are in Jesus and you have placed your faith in his finished work, and you've been redeemed and reconciled back to God through Christ, one day the Bible says you are going to be invited to a banqueting table beyond belief in the heavens, in the presence of God, and with Christ. And I want to remind us that the only thing any of us deserves because of our sin is death and hell and judgment and condemnation, but God. Ephesians 2 says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the Bible says in the gospel, in Jesus, our entire identity gets changed. We receive the gift of sonship and daughtership. We get adopted to the family of God. We're chosen by the Father to be with him forever. And not just that, the Bible says in Jesus, you're now co-heirs with Jesus. 
Romans 8 makes it clear, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the Bible says, in Jesus, you're a kid of the king. You have a promised, incredible inheritance that's imperishable and unshakable and is in the kingdom eternally waiting for you if you are in Jesus. And we've been invited to the king's table, not because we're great or awesome or we have the ability to get there on our own. We come to the Father's table because God carries us to his table. You see, Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. So if he got anywhere from point A to point B, how did he do it? Literally drug himself across the floor, across the dirt, across what was ever on the floor. If he were to be able to sit at the king's table, guess what? Somebody picked that joker up and put him in the seat he didn't belong in. And said, this is your seat. I'm going to put you right here. So even Mephibosheth was dependent on somebody else to put him at the king's table. Do you see you are Mephibosheth? There's an invitation to come to the table of the king of the whole universe. He's given kindness and mercy, and he calls us by name and moves us towards repentance. And we have to acknowledge we have nothing good to offer you, God, except our sin and our shame. We don't get to your table by good works. We're crippled and deformed because of our sin. We're unlovely and we're undeserving. We do not deserve for one skinny second to put our sin-stained legs under your table. We don't deserve your presence, but God says you're invited anyway. The offer to sit at my table stands for all those that are in my son. That is why the grace is so dadgum scandalous. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteous of God. All the story of Mephibosheth finds its fulfillment in Jesus. What do I mean? Jesus left a throne in heaven and he came to earth to a place of what? No pasture. To a place of brokenness and sin, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, says, I'm going to leave the perfect throne of heaven next to the Father, and I'm going to become a shameful one for you. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to take your deformity and your guilt and your shame on myself, and not just that, I'm going to take all the wrath you deserve because you're unholy. I'm going to take it upon myself so that you can be forgiven. How many of you have ever walked into a classroom? a living room, or maybe better yet, a kitchen table that you were invited to come and eat at, and you sat down and quickly realized you sat in somebody else's seat. And you're just like, I'm not supposed to be here. They may be kind of gracious, they make you move like, uh, this is not reserved for me, this is not where I'm supposed to be, it's awkward, and you're trying to look around to see where else I might sit. I want us to understand that Jesus left his seat at the table so that he could come and carry us to the table. Jesus came and took the posture of a servant so the servants could take the posture of a son. And the only reason we could sit in that seat before the king is that when God looks over at us, he doesn't see us sitting in the seat. He sees Jesus in our place. And that makes us worthy to be at the seat. You see, I'm not sure where you walked in here from this morning. I'm not sure what's going on in your life. I'm not sure if you've been 
struggling with some things. I'm not sure if you're trying to find your identity in the things of the world. I'm not sure if you walked in this morning, you're like, I know, I don't know Jesus. I know about him. Maybe you walked in this morning, you're not even seeking after him. And today God has you sovereignly hear these words. God has made a way for you to be forgiven. God has made for a way for every person who may be unlovable, who may feel like they're an outcast, who may feel like they're rejected, overlooked, dismissed, or even self-righteous. Maybe they know all the answers, but they've never postured their heart before God in a humble way. Maybe, hear me, they want to say, oh, God, you can be my Lord, but you can be my Savior, but you can't call the shots in my life. And they've never submitted their life to Jesus. Today, I want you to know everything has been done that is necessary to bring you to the Father. The question doesn't, isn't if the invitation is extended, it's will you respond with repentance and faith. So maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, Jason, I, I know Jesus. He saved me by his grace. I know I'm undeserving and God has lavished his kindness on me. And, but I'm not really living like I'm a child of the king. I'm not really living in such a way that is honoring Jesus. And I'm really struggling to live out of this status of, of being a redeemed son or daughter of God. I'm, I'm letting other things take priority in my relationship with Jesus. And I'm investing my time and my talent and my effort into all kinds of things that are temporal, but I'm not investing in things that really matter or eternal. And I'm really struggling to live out of my kingdom citizenship. I'm too comfortable in the world that I live in right now. See, if that's where you are this morning, there's still hope to be found and encouragement found from 2 Samuel chapter 16 as we see what happens in Mephibosheth's story. So here's the deal. David was a good king by and large. David has doing some good stuff up to this point, but David made some really stupid mistakes. Next week, we're going to see David drop the ball in a major way, and we're going to see David not just the murderer, but David the adulterer. If you know David's story, he is a deadbeat dad by and large. He doesn't love his kids well. He doesn't protect his kids. He doesn't care for his kids. He doesn't stand up for his kids. He is a passive father. And all that leads to a great strife between him and his son Absalom. And Absalom tries to take the throne, and David flees Jerusalem out of fear of his own life. And when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 16, this is what we learn. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba the servant of Mephibosheth met with him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, and 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will be given back to the, the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord. The king, David's fleeing Jerusalem. Ziba shows up with a truckload, well, a donkey load of bread and raisins and fruit and wine. He came stocked up to impress, trying to show his loyalty with all his stuff, but it's all pretense. He's trying to pull a fast one, a fast one over on David because he has ulterior self-serving motives at the expense of Mephibosheth. He's trying to manipulate the situation to paint Mephibosheth in a bad light. He's not really loyal to David. He's driven by greed. And he shows up with all this stuff and he throws the story out that Mephibosheth actually is not loyal to David. He's loyal to Absalom. So he didn't come out to meet David and he throws him under the bus. He questions his character. And David David, because he's fleeing from his life, he's not thinking clearly, and he's hasty, says, well, you know what? I give everything to you that I gave to Mephibosheth. Just take it. If he's not loyal, just take it. And if that's where the story ended, it would be terrifying and tragic. But as we head to the finish line, I want you to look at 2 Samuel chapter 19, just a couple of verses. As David is now returning back to Jerusalem, we read this. 
And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he had come back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Zeba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. So these... In these verses, we see this beautiful demonstration of the attitude and the posture a believer should have not to pull on Lord, uh, the Lord of the Rings series, but the posture we should have as we return our king, as we wait for the return of our king. Because Mephibosheth is brought before David, and what does it say? He had not taken care of his feet. And I'd imagine with his feet in that day, with a lack of medicine and all the things of that day, his feet will get infected if they weren't taken care of. So he has not taken care of his feet. He has not trimmed his beard. I can't blame him. And he's not washed his clothes. Scholars say four years have passed. Not cleaned his feet, not trimmed his beard, not washed his clothes. He's dirty and scraggly and stinky because, hear me team, he is more concerned with his king than his own well-being. This once exiled lame man had tasted of the king's kindness, had been invited to the king's table as a son and rescued and reconciled. And he said, I want nothing else on earth than to be in the presence of my king again. So I'm going to take this 20-mile trek out to where David is to see him. I'm going to throw caution to the wind, and I'm going to find a way to get out there because there's no sacrifice too big for the king who has extended such overwhelming kindness to me. See, Mephibosheth was lame and he was limited, but I tell you what, he was loyal. And even after David learned the truth about Ziba's lie and he offered to give Mephibosheth back half the land, he refused to take it. See, my king, you're back safely. That's, that's more than enough. I don't need material possessions. I don't, I don't need status. I don't need the praise of people. I only want to be in your presence. You rescued me from death. That's all I care about. Team, we need to hear this. There is a heavenly king. He was ransomed and redeemed and purchased sinners with his blood. He has graciously picked us. And he has faithfully kept his promises to us. And he has abundantly provided for us. And that king one day will come back to take us home. He will return. So how do we respond? If you know Jesus, how do we respond to the kindness of God? We live our lives in the sake, for the sake of the gospel, trying to extend the name and the fame of Jesus far and wide. We sacrifice what we want for what God wants. We invest our hearts and our time and treasure and talent and efforts and energy into the things that actually matter, into the things that will last, into the things that change generations, into the gospel, into disciples being made and churches being planted and disciples raised up. We live walking by the Spirit of God, marked by kindness because we've been the recipients of kindness. See, the Bible says, Jesus is our satisfaction. We don't just search for satisfaction anywhere else. He is our sufficiency. In Jesus, we are enough. We have nothing to prove and nobody to impress. Jesus is only, Jesus is alone worthy of all our praise and worship because he is more than enough. And here's been my prayer this week, and I have two minutes and I'm done. If you're here this morning and you think, well, 
I have not yet tasted of the kindness of God that you're speaking of. I've not yet actually experienced the grace that we're seeing in this story. I pray that right now you see yourself in the plight and predicament of Mephibosheth. I pray that right now God His grace has held up a mirror and you're seeing yourself as hopeless and helpless as you actually are apart from Jesus and that God's Spirit right now is knocking on your heart and saying there is sin you need to repent of and turn to me. And I pray that right now you would look to Jesus and confess your sin and need for a Savior. And that you would admit your need for God to come into your life and give you His gift of forgiveness based on what Jesus has done and that today would be the day for the very first time you would come to understand that God brings beauty from ashes, that he brings and restores anything that is broken, and that he can heal the most broken spaces and places in your life by his grace. And the beauty of the gospel says this, God loves us where we are, and he longs to make us whole and new and transformed through his grace. He's not waiting for us to get our junk together or to be a better version of ourselves. He loves us right as we are, and he wants to give us his grace. And this morning, all we need to do is respond in repentance and faith and find God's grace to be amazing in his table ready for one more person to slide their legs underneath it. Titus 3 says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray.